This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. I'm Audrey Cooper, the editor-in-chief of the San Francisco Chronicle. Today I'm joined by Justin Phillips, a food writer for the Chronicle and a newly minted columnist. He's been writing about what it's like to be one of the few black men working in San Francisco. About 5% of our city is African-American, a shockingly low number that is in part due to city policies that bulldozed black neighborhoods in the 50s and 60s, a period known euphemistically as urban renewal. Years of gentrification have compounded the problem. Justin and I will talk about black culture in the Bay Area and his new column. That's coming up next on Fifth Emission. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Justin Phillips, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. So you have been a writer here since 2016. Oh, boy. Yeah, <laughs> it seems like just a, a blink of time. Uh-huh. Uh, why don't you tell everybody what you were doing before we dragged you out to San Francisco? Before I got pulled out here. Um, so I was writing about, uh, this is going to be super boring, but uh, I was writing about uh, liquefied natural gas companies, LNG companies. And uh, <laughs> every was, time you say that, I giggle because it's so different. It makes from no sense what you're doing right, now. Right. Every time I, you know, it's funny. I didn't feel weird about explaining it to people until I got here and realized, like, oh wow, this sounds absolutely absurd. Because <laughs> then I go from telling them about that and like writing about lawsuits, and uh, also covered like gambling in Louisiana and casinos, which is like a big deal. And uh, I was our city reporter, so I went to like city council meetings, like did stories in the city government. And um, but then I also had uh, a food column, which was kind of like, um, you know, like goofy, self-deprecating stuff. And uh, so I think there was a and a uh, Paula wanted to mer- uh, my editor now uh, wanted to merge those two things and saw that I the fit. natural gas and the food criticism. I mean, there's a way to get those <laughs> things on the, you know. Um, so you moved here from Louisiana. Right. And uh, became our restaurant reporter. Right. And you have, uh, you probably write more stories in the newsroom than anyone else because there's so much appetite for the restaurant openings and closings and who's doing what. And like we could clone you and there would probably still not be enough restaurant coverage in the Chronicle. I never thought that there would be that many stories to do. You know what's weird? I remember when I was doing the interview process, you told me there would be a lot of content. You're like... Yeah, there's a, uh, you know, I can't remember what you said, but you were like, yeah, there's a bunch of stuff to do. And I was like, there's no way. There's no <laughs> way there could be that many restaurant stories to do, uh, that much to cover. But honestly, on days when there's not anything happening, it feels weird because there's always a place opening, always a place closing, always a chef moving. Uh, maybe there's some controversy. Maybe there's a lawsuit. Maybe there's there's always something. 
So you're also branching out now and a drum roll. You have written two columns yeah. uh, at the back of a date book for our features sections. Um, what what are you trying to accomplish with this column? So we realized that uh, so some of the stories that I wrote that did really well that I was personally also passionate about um, kind of looked at like black culture in the Bay Area. You know, sometimes it was criticism. Sometimes it's just reporting out a story, you know, speaking about a trend. So this column lets me do that as well. Uh, but it doesn't have to be strictly related to food. Uh, you know, it could be music, it could be movies. It could just be the experience of like a young black person in uh, San Francisco. Yeah, I think we should probably clarify for everybody listening, you are black. Right. Yeah, yes. that, that's an Everyone. important thing for yes. everybody Let's to make know. make that known. Maybe I should have done that in the beginning. I bet you people were probably 10 minutes into this being like, what, what, is, <laughs> what he talking is going about? on? <laughs> so when you moved here from uh, Louisiana right. to San Francisco, how how did how did how did you react to uh, the the diversity or lack there of it or very one sided diversity that is the Bay Area? Yeah, I, well, you come into this area thinking that the the region's very diverse, right? And so the first place that I lived, um, I found an apartment in Oakland. So I was thinking like, oh, okay, it's gonna be the blackest area I've ever been. I've heard comedians talk about this place and stuff like that, and read about it, know all the rap artists and San Francisco too. It has to be something like that. But it's um, from, you know, as an African-American, it's it's always surprising when uh, you see how few there are. Let's just talk about San Francisco specifically, how few there are in San Francisco. And we talked about this before we started recording, just about how 5% of the population is black. And the, ten- the lowest of any metropolitan city right. ever. The tangible evidence of that is shocking because I'll go there. Uh, I'll walk through, you know, a restaurant, a store. I'll be like in a specific neighborhood, kind of just walking around like if I have an interview to do. And I'll look down at my watch and be like, you know, or my phone and be like, man, it's been like 15 minutes. since I saw another black person. Doesn't happen any other place. You know, it's just there are those moments that are, uh, you know, just really strange. Yeah, I, I'm I'm sure that is, especially coming from a place that was has, has a large a black community. large black mm-hmm. community. So what what do you think like what do you want people to get out of this column? Like what is important for for white or Asian or people who are who are not black? What what do you want them to take away from it? Well, you know, uh, I think for in any region, you always want to be able to amplify the voices of people that aren't that prominent there. And so I do think, you know, I, I hope it's like educational in a certain capacity um, where like the first column that I wrote about where I was describing like kind of like this anxiety associated with telling white people that you don't like a black movie. And that's amplified because there are no black people in the city. So then it's like, man, you're the only black person I've met today. And you said you hated this black movie. So there's like these weird kind of um you know, social moments that are worth describing and explaining why they're important or they're significant or what I wrestle with. I just hope it's educational in that. Well, the the movie specifically that you were referring to was The Last Black Man in San Francisco. Right. Which got really great reviews right. from movie critics. The vast majority or maybe all of them. It seemed like all of them. Are white. Yeah. And I thought that was a really interesting column because 
you know, especially in the Bay Area, I think we are we try to be so inclusive and try to be so, you know, woke mm -hmm. that to hear a black person say, dude, that movie sucked right. <laughs> is kind of a jarring thing. So was it hard for you to tell people like I didn't yeah. like that movie? You know, yeah, it was it, I was wondering what the reaction would be. Um, Audrey, I got 80 emails like within uh, like a day and a half. Really? Yeah. Wow. Off that, That's uh, a lot. It's a t yeah, for people out there, like when you write stories, you know, so you'll get a couple sometimes if it moves a lot on uh, online, but you know, 80 is a ton. And so, but the funny thing was, a lot of the, the ones that were front that where people identified themselves as African Americans were saying, like, thank God you said that. Because <laughs> I also hated that movie. And I also hated, you know, and they would name another movie. So, uh, you know, I, I think the reaction was supportive. And I think also it's a chance. I think people know that we're, you know, it's very, it's hyper liberal out here. So everyone wants to be supportive of everything. And sometimes being so supportive, we, you know, might hold a project back. If you don't give it any constructive criticism, somebody might make that same movie again and it'll be total garbage. So, I mean, every now and then when you can provide, uh, when you can say like, hey man, this sucks. It's cool if you say it sucks. Then I think people are happy. And what do you think, uh, you know, I, I, you also made the point in that piece that we need more diversity in our critics and right. which is something that we talk a lot about the Chronicle, how we are diversifying our staff and how do we reach out and make sure that the white narrative of of history and of current events is not the only narrative that we that we are sharing mm -hmm. online or in the print pages. And what do, what do you think uh, what do you think the benefit is or can you explain what you think the benefit is oh, yeah. of having more diverse people because I think you know if if I were to share that point of view with my relatives in Kansas they would say well why do you <laughs> need to be black to write about a black movie right. yeah. and so what how do you describe that to people? There's like cultural nuances that, you know, a black writer might be able to explain in the criticism of a black movie the same way that. And, and now that movie, uh, I think it's important now to diversify your um, camp of critics at a publication because movies are becoming increasingly diverse. There was, uh, you know, Crazy Rich Asians did extremely well. Um you know, always be my maybe had a uh, you know had Asian lead actor at actor and actress, and those films can do are served well by having people from those backgrounds who can relate to those certain moments in the films, like on a cultural level, and describe how they work or how they don't work. So you know, as Hollywood becomes more diverse, more creative, and celebrates these different backgrounds, we should mirror that at publications, and you get a more I used this in a story and somebody kept emailing me like, now robust is stuck in my head and it's stuck in my head too. <laughs> so you get more robust criticism. Yeah. The column you have that uh, was published today is about the lack of um, really successful black owned restaurants in San Francisco. Right. Can you talk about why you think it is that we've had such a hard time having really successful black owned restaurants here? I don't know. Honestly. I think, and, and that's part of the reason why I wanted to write this, because I'm not really sure, but we live, you know, we live in this region where people want to say they're supportive of, like, minority-owned businesses, Black-owned businesses. If you hear about, you know, Brown Sugar Kitchen, uh, Tanya Holland's restaurant expanding, people around you are going to be like, oh, man, that's amazing. That's crazy. I can't wait to go. And then if you fast forward a couple of months, you'll be like, have you been yet? They'll say no. So there's this weird gap between the um, vocal support that 
non-Black San Francisco residents have for Black restaurants and the financial support that they need to survive. And so, you know, there's some, uh, and I was thinking, uh, there, this place that closed recently, it's an Afro-Caribbean place in the, in the Fillmore. Um, it was like the most prominent place to open out there in like years. And uh, it was called Isla Vida. It was this spinoff of this soul food place in San Francisco called Farmer Brown. And when it opened, I remember everyone was just like, man, this is so great. Fillmore is getting new life. This historically black neighborhood has this business owned by black people. I love Afro-Caribbean food. I can't wait to go eat there. And I remember like two months after they opened, they're like, man, no one's here. No one's showing up. And even when it closed, I remember people reached out to me. I'm like, oh, my God, I can't believe it closed. I was just planning to go there. And it had been open, you know, for more than six months, like eight months. It was less than a year. So there's support, but it just doesn't translate. And I'm not, I don't know. I'm not 100% sure why. Well, let me play devil's advocate. Is it possible that these restaurants just aren't good enough? That's a, a great point. In a very point. crowded area? That's a great point. And I, and I, I say something like that uh, in the column where, you know, it's not saying that these places needed to last forever or that they were phenomenal, that they didn't have their flaws. But when you have an, a huge amount of restaurants in a small city and you have a category with only a few of a specific type of restaurants and people are clearly a fan of this type of restaurants, you'd expect them to last longer than they do. They just close in really short order. If you pull up like a, there was, I remember when I first got here, there was this list that came out of like black restaurants you should try in San Francisco. This is like 2017. You look at that list now, most of them are gone. Really? Yeah. Uh, and I was like, man, they, and they all closed like recently. So maybe it's like a more recent shift than it is. Or it could be the end product of, you know, the last couple of years. But either way, it's uh, something that's happening. Do you think it's also that when you have such a small black population, the people who might start restaurants here think like I, San Francisco is not my place to do this. I'm going to go somewhere else and do it. It's a great point. Yeah, I, I, I think that's 100 percent right. Because uh, if you go across the bridge to the East Bay, there are a bunch of black owned restaurants that are doing really well. I mean, the assumption can be made that they're doing really well because, you know, like they're still popular. Then. If you leave restaurants and go to bakeries, there's a whole group of black owned bakeries that are multiplying, that are opening other locations. So San Francisco stands alone in its uh, in the number of black owned restaurants that are closing and kind of like the the infrequency with which that they're opening because the East Bay is a completely different animal. What do you think? the non-black residents of San Francisco and the Bay Area, what should we be thinking about when we see these numbers about like 5% of the city down from 14% in the 70s? What what should we do to um, make it a more inclusive place when there are already so few people? Because, yeah. you know, this is this is probably TMI, but my son, who is seven, he actually said to me two years ago, like uh, ma- he said something like, mommy, I don't know any people with dark skin. And I mm, thought, oh, my gosh, yeah. you're right. <laughs> and I thought, I'm going to invite every black person I know <laughs> over to my house. Come my- but yeah, it's come hard because there are not very many people in San right. Francisco. And so I find myself like really struggling with like, what can we do about this when right. there's so many socioeconomic 
factors going into it's it. It's deep. Yeah, you. It, it would be amazing if it was simple enough to just be like, man, you know, let's just bring some people back. But like, you know, they're getting priced out. Uh, you know, families are leaving. There's just it's a very so. So let's let's go back to what you were saying. Like, what can uh, non-black people do? I mean, one way that an area can feel more inclusive is if you have representation and one form of representation for black people out here is restaurants. So it all it's, you know, all a circle. So it goes back to being like, if you see a black owned business, maybe pop in and support it. Or, you know, if you're not going to, you know, you don't have to be a regular every day. No one can eat soul food every single day if it is a soul food spot. It's probably not healthy. For it's you probably not. That. Yeah. Let's just be straight up. It's probably not healthy for you. Like, so that's not the expectation. But the idea of uh, of going to these businesses and being and as if you support that they exist financially support that they exist because that representation could lead to maybe a couple of black families like one month being or whoever being like you know what i I might san francisco looks kind of nice you see that you know they got that afro-caribbean spot on that street they have this we might live out here that you know it it, it could work it's not guaranteed but it's just an idea so all right last question since you are the food writer Uh and you've written about this Uh if people want to support some black owned restaurants where do you think they should go oh man i uh so there's a bunch i i was kind of like stressing about this um earlier so i'm including some in the column uh there's this place called auntie april's in the bayview it's on third street um soul food spot there's this place called little skillet um that the the person that runs that restaurant is the partner of uh, the owner of Farmer Brown, which is, is now at the air, you know, San Francisco International Airport. Uh, that place is good. There's Radio Africa in the Bayview too. Oh, that's great. Yeah, that, that place is great. Yeah. I I get nervous every time. Uh, so, like people will email me randomly and be like, "Do they close?" I'm like, "What?" <laughs> I don't think so. Um, and then there's this new uh, Nigerian restaurant that just opened called Echo Kitchen that. Uh, is incredibly interesting. I think it's our, you know, I don't think it's our first Nigerian restaurant in the city. Um, and then there's this other place called uh, Hazel's Southern Bar and Kitchen. Um, it's on Market Street that uh, I think it's just a solid restaurant. I'm 100% for getting spots that people should go to. Like there are other ones, but um, those are just a couple. That's a good start. It's a good them. start. It's a list. And also right now I'm super hungry. So uh we will have you on next time when we get to debate barbecue. Yeah. Oh, okay? yeah. I'm, I'm down for that. That's the next one. Thank you, Justin, for being Thank on. Thank you. Thank you to Justin Phillips for joining me today. Thank you to King Kaufman for producing this episode. And thanks to all of you who listened. Fifth and Mission is part of the San Francisco Chronicle Podcast Network. If you like this show, we'd love it if you'd subscribe to it wherever you get your podcasts. And if you've got a minute to give us a quick review, that helps us build our audience so we can keep growing. You can support Fifth and Mission and the newsroom that creates it with a subscription to the San Francisco Chronicle. There are print and digital editions. Find out more at sfchronicle.com slash subscribe.